0: And so feel free to turn there if you want. We were in 1st Kings 6 last week. Um, if you remember, that was a description, kind of the big description, of the big picture of Solomon's temple. The outside, what it looked like, the inside dimensions and in appearance. Uh, chapter 7, we're only in verses 1 through 12 this morning. Chapter 7 seems a little bit like an intrusion into the description of the temple. As you look past verse 12 in chapter 7, then all of Chapter 8, you see basically the description of the workmanship related to everything that was made of brass and gold, uh, all the things that went in or around the temple. In the middle of that, we've got this description of Solomon's palace, his home. That's the only portion of chapter 7 we'll be in this morning. It seems like a little bit of intrusion. It does have this in common with the rest of the larger passage it's a part of. It talks about Solomon's building on the big scale, of the building. So to the temple, it adds his house. So we'll pick up this morning, 1 Kings 7, chapters or verses 1 through 12. Solomon was building his own house. That's in contrast to the temple. 13 years, and he finished all his house. Notice as we go through this, his house is actually quite a collection. He built first the house of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was 150 feet, its width 75 feet, and its height 45 feet on four rows of cedar pillars with cedar beams on the pillars. It was paneled with cedar above the side chambers, which were on the 45 pillars, 15 in each row. There were artistic window frames in three rows, and window was opposite window in three ranks. All the doorways and doorposts had squared artistic frames and window was opposite window in three ranks. Then he made the hall of pillars. Its length was 75 feet, and its width 45 feet, and a porch was in front of them, and pillars and a threshold in front of them. He made the hall of the throne, where he was to judge the hall of judgment, and it was paneled with cedar from floor to floor. His house, where he was to live, the other court inward from the hall, was of the same workmanship. He also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom Solomon had married. All these were of costly stones, of stone cut according to measure, sawed with saws, inside and outside, even from the foundation to the coping, and so from bottom to top, so on the outside to the great court." The foundation was of costly stones, large stones, stones of 15 feet and stones of 12 feet. And above were costly stones, stone cut according to measure, and cedar. So the great court all around, three rows of cut stone and a row of cedar beams, even as the inner court of the house of the Lord and the porch of the house. And Let me skip ahead to 1 Kings 10. Uh, This is a passage we won't look at later, but this describes a little bit more fully some of what went inside these structures. 1 Kings 10, picking up at verse 16. King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold using 600 shekels of gold on each large shield. He made 300 shields of beaten gold using three minas of gold on each shield. And the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with refined gold. There were six steps to the throne and a round top to the throne at its rear, and arms on each side of the seat and two lions standing beside the arms. Twelve lions were standing there on the six steps, on the one side and on the other. Nothing like it was made for any other kingdom All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. As you can see in verse 1, when it said Solomon was building his own house, this is a pretty concise way of saying he was building his own personal dwelling, but he was building a whole lot more than that too. He was building really the center of his administration. So go back through this list if you want. He built the house of the forest of Lebanon. That's one building. The hall of pillars is another. The hall of the throne is another and then the, the house for Pharaoh's daughter as well. So it looks like besides his own personal dwelling, the hall of the forest of Lebanon appears to have something to do with a military center. This is the place where all the shields are hung later. The hall of pillars, the best guess is this was a receiving or a dining hall. The hall of the throne, which is described here in 1 Kings 10, is the judiciary center, or it's the place people would come for judgments. And then the home for uh, the best known of his wives, perhaps, uh, as far as Israel was going, the highest profile of Solomon's many wives, Uh, Pharaoh's daughter's house, was built there as well. So this wasn't just a house. It was his house, but it was his house and really all the administrative buildings for the kingdom. So it was private dwellings, but it was also all the public administration buildings as well. It's thought, and there's no, we we don't have anything related to Solomon's palace area, as far as I know, archaeologically dug up, but it's thought that this would have been located just to the west of the Temple Mount. So you remember, if you're looking at Jerusalem from the south, and the Hill of David and the Temple's kind of on the right hill, and then you come down a little valley, and then you come up to the western hill, and it's thought that Solomon's palace would have been on that western hill, This was kind of important. It put the temple right next to Solomon's house and administration. In that sense, geographically, it kind of linked Solomon's temple, God's temple that Solomon built, with Solomon and his administration. So if you went up to see one, you probably saw both. So this was important. It linked Solomon's administration with God and the temple you know as far as description there's not a lot of description on these buildings there's some of the dimensions we do know this the quality of the materials and the workmanship was the finest and if you've read through this or remember the description in chapter 6 it sounds a lot like the temple and i'm sure cosmetically or the way these structures appeared they would have been would have borne quite a bit in common The the buildings were impressive sizes, you know, one building 150 feet long by 75 feet wide, that's a big building, four stories tall. Uh, The foundation stones were immense like those of the temple. Uh, The building stones were finished on all sides. When you went into Solomon's uh, area, there were no unfinished details. Everything that was exposed was finished and polished. And then it describes his throne, you know, this thing made of ivory, which would have been impressive on its own. And then you find out it's covered with gold. And When you walked into Solomon's throne room, the room would have been impressive. But then these six steps going up with a line on each step and then two big lines next to the throne and then the throne with an arch over the top of it. Everything here was truly impressive. I read through several commentaries on this. Uh, Most commentaries don't spend a lot of time on the buildings per se, but one commentary I found uh, interesting because the commentators inferred that when they read this passage, these 12 verses on Solomon's palace and the administrative buildings, they believed that the text was meant to convey a negative connotation on Solomon and this building project. And listen to it. The, The reasoning goes like this. It took Solomon 13 years, almost twice as long, to build the palace and these buildings as it did the temple. In other words, he spent a lot more time on these buildings than on the temple. His own dwellings were much larger than the temple. And then going back to verse uh, 1, it says his own house. This is thought to imply that his own house, not God's house, and maybe not what God was up to either. So these commentators think this is a negative implication. That is, its location in the description of the building of the temple and then calling it Solomon's house, the size, the time, etc. This is all meant to imply that Solomon's heart really wasn't where God wanted it to be. It was on himself, on his own wealth, etc. You guys know because we've talked about enough scriptures in the past Oftentimes, in either Old or New Testaments, there is something to be said for looking at the structure of the story or the structure of the area of the text that you're looking at. That is, that God not infrequently builds into the story, the story structure. He builds in things that tip us off to what he means to convey. So if you remember last week in chapter 6, we talked about those warning verses in the middle of the chapter that just talks about the building of the temple and that they acted as a pivot to remind us what was important to God, that it wasn't the building per se, it was their hearts and God's desire promised to dwell with them. So sometimes it's hard to say how much or how little to read into the structure of the story or where these verses happen to land in the larger text. Hard to say. In Solomon's defense, though, let me point out some things here. (coughs) In 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 10, it says it came about at the end of 20 years in which Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house. In Solomon's defense, the temple took seven years to build, we already read. In 1 Kings 9, it tells us that the whole program, the large building program of Solomon took 20 years. We already read that this program on his own house took 13, so this tells us this he was not building his own house at the same time as the temple. In other words, Solomon's commitment, first and foremost, and we talked about this before, it was to get the temple up and built. It was to take care of God's house first. So we know from chapter 9, Solomon didn't start anything on his own project until the temple and the temple mount was completed. So he did put God, God's house, his temple, his building first before any of the construction started on his administration building or his own house. Related to the time element, 13 years is a long time. You remember, seven years for the temple, and the temple was an impressive structure. So what do you do with the amount of time that he spent on these other buildings? Compared to the size of the temple, uh, 13 years was not a long time to spend on all these other buildings. And related to the size or the and the time related to that, the structure was bigger and it was more complex because it needed to be. You remember, it's not just his house. It's the center of his administration. So this would be like us if we came in and made Topeka the capital of Kansas today and we put up the Supreme Court building, we build the Capitol, we build the governor's residence. You can see it would be an immense undertaking, and that's what Solomon has here. So <clears throat> the time and the size were all related to what needed to be done. It doesn't necessarily infer anything negative on Solomon And then compare this to the temple. When Solomon took the throne and started the building of the temple, you remember that he started with all the wealth his father David had set aside for the temple and all the plans were already complete and given. Do you remember that? Out of 1 Chronicles 28, this is what David says, David gave to his son Solomon the plan of the porch of the temple, its buildings, its storehouses, upper rooms, the plan of all that he had in mind for the courts of the house of the Lord. Chapter 28 in 1 Chronicles says, The Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me all the details of this pattern. So when Solomon starts the temple, he has the plans and he has all, Probably all of the gold and all of the jewels and those other things, metals, that David had set aside. You can read about that elsewhere. So he hits the ground running. Now we talked about he interacts with Hiram to get the stones and to get the lumber, but everything else was good to go. So the temple only took seven years. This was actually a relatively short period of time to build this kind of a structure. When he builds his own house, he doesn't start with any of this in place. So he's starting from scratch on his own building. Also related to the temple, when when you're tempted to compare the two, I like to err on this side. Since God gave the plan for the temple, the temple was all that God wanted it to be. This is important. The temple was everything God wanted it to be, and it was nothing that he didn't want it to be. Since he drew up the plans and gave them to David, just like Moses saw a pattern in heaven for the tabernacle. And if you remember, when David talks about building a temple, God says, I'm, I have no complaints about my little tent I'm living in right now. The tent, the tabernacle that Israel had in the wilderness, that was God's design too. So in both cases, God had no complaints about the temple or the tent because they were his design. So if we're going to compare the temple and Solomon's dwellings, God says of the temple, it's exactly what I wanted. So then if we try to infer something negative about the temple based on the amount of time Solomon spent on the other buildings, I think it's an unfair comparison because God got what he wanted in the temple. It was everything he wanted it to be, nothing that he didn't want it to be. So it was a big structure. It was much more than Solomon's personal dwelling. It was the administrative center of the nation, It took a long time. He started from scratch. By the way, too, you guys know in the Middle East, uh, you look for old cities on hills, and they're called tells, so that if you went to Israel today and you see a big hill kind of in a flat place, you assume that's an old city. And when they build on places like this and they built in Solomon's time, you remember Jerusalem, it's hills, and it actually sits on the end, the southern end of some hills. So when they built the Temple Mount, they couldn't just build a building. They had to bring in rubble, and block to build up the temple platform. If you see today pictures of the Temple Mount from the south, you'll see a very, very tall wall. And that gets you up to the flat area that the Dome of the Rock is on today. But this would have been true for Solomon's area as well. You would have come down into a valley and up another hill before you would have got to the area of his palace. So when he started building there too, all of that area had to be leveled out to sections big enough to put these buildings on. So this was a huge deal, a large undertaking. From another perspective, though, related to the size of his palace and the grandeur and the splendor of these administrative halls, back in 1 Kings 3, God said to Solomon, I have given you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that there will not be any among the kings like you all your days. In 1 Chronicles 29, the Lord highly exalted Solomon in the sight of all Israel and bestowed on him royal majesty which had not been on any king before him in Israel. I want to focus on this. God said, I have given you riches and honor. God bestowed on him royal majesty. In other words, at least in part, I believe that this complex that was Solomon's personal and public area just west of the temple was in part God's desire simply to bless Solomon because, as you remember, Solomon asked, when God gave him a blank check and said, what do you want? Solomon said, give me wisdom so I can honor you by leading your people. And in response to that, God said, I'm going to bless you with things you didn't ask for. And I'm going to set you apart and above any other king alive during your day. So I think in large measure, The grandeur and the size, the beauty of these personal and public buildings that Solomon put up were meant as gifts from God because Solomon had put God and God's things first. Solomon was blessed by God because Solomon had put God first. We've talked about that before. Another reason, though, I think that God blessed Solomon this way is because Solomon had told, or excuse me, God had told David that he would bless David. By blessing his descendants. Do you remember this? He would bless David by blessing David's descendants. In 1 Chronicles 17, it was David that got the idea to build a temple. He felt bad because he lived in a nice palace, his own house that he'd built. And he felt bad that God was living in the slums, so to speak, living in a little tent while David has a hall of cedar. So he proposed to the prophet that he would build God a temple. And God came back and told David, David, you're not going to build my house, and I have no complaints anyway. But in that conversation, God says this to David, The Lord will build a house for you. Instead of David building the Lord a house, the Lord will build David a house. When your days are fulfilled that you must go to be with your fathers, I will set up one of your descendants after you who will be of your sons. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build for me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom. His throne shall be established forever. David says later in 1 Chronicles 28, God has chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne. You guys know that for Jews, unlike us today, it was particularly important that you saw your blessing connected with a posterity, that is with children after you. and Not just having children, but children that would be blessed physically and materially in the land. So God told David that he would bless him by giving him a son who would sit on his throne. And I think in no small part when God blesses Solomon with this kind of honor and wealth, it is in part because he's blessing David. He's keeping his promise to David to set on the throne of David, one of his descendants, who would rule after him. You notice in this text, 1 Chronicles 17, the kingdom that would last forever, Solomon's kingdom, came to an end. And clearly, this passage in 1 Chronicles looks past Solomon to Solomon's descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ. Kind of winding down related to the scope and the size and the riches of Solomon's own buildings, um, (coughs) two things. God is good. And Solomon and Israel were meant to reflect the fact that God was good and he was generous. And also, it was meant to remind people of the fullness of the consummation of the ages when all the redeemed join God in his royal pavilions, his palace yet to come. The first of those, God is good and loves to bless and bless abundantly. Think of, just briefly, think of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Uh, Theologically, the, the Garden of Eden is seen on one hand to be the temple of God in the new creation, And here's the earth. You guys know the earth is a wonderful place, cursed as it is today and subject to sin and death. It's a great place. And in the middle of it, in the Garden of Eden, kind of in the best of the best of this good earth, this very good creation, God sets just one guy and one gal. Now, I know they're meant to reproduce, but this is extravagant. This world today holds six billion people or so, and and it could hold a lot more. And in the middle of this earth that holds that many people today, God sets this lush paradise, and then the paradise of paradise is Eden, and in it he sets one guy and one gal and says, enjoy it. Do you see what I mean? God is extravagant in his generosity. Extravagant in his generosity. In Matthew 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks and he says, if you then being evil, man, compared to God, evil, Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father who's in heaven give what is good to those who seek Him, to those who ask? In other words, fallen man, and I don't mean saints. You know, when you trust Christ, you become a saint. You're not characterized by an evil heart, but by a new nature. But God says, even to unregenerate men, there's still enough of goodness in them that they like to give good things to those that they know and care about. And Jesus says of God, how much more? God, who's only good, knows how to give good things. God is good and He's generous. Listen to this passage of Ephesians 1. This is in the context of salvation, but it's the same characteristic of God. Paul says, in Him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. When we needed to be redeemed, it's not like God put down the bare minimum to get us back. Paul says, out of the riches of His grace, He's gracious, and He's rich in it, He lavishes this redemption, this salvation, this life on us. So that if you're thirsty and you go up to God and say, could I have a little drink? You know, psyche so gives you one of those big things at the quick shop instead. You know, I need a little, and God says, well, have a lot. He is generous, to a fault, we could say. Generous to a fault. This is part of his character. So <clears throat> when we look at Solomon and we see this incredible wealth, I think this is a great reminder to me that God is generous. God loves to give extravagantly, lavishly, abundantly, In fact, he says elsewhere, I believe in the Sermon on the Mount as well, that God gives shaken down, overflowing, so that God's gifts to us oftentimes are of the type that are are so great, so vast, the quantity is so large that you can't keep it. It just overflows. That pleases God. That's the kind of God we serve. Also, though, remember in Solomon's time and in his neck of the woods... Uh, Solomon was meant to be to the nations a representative of God. If you read passages out of Isaiah and Micah, you'll see that God says in times yet to come, when King Jesus reigns on the throne of Jerusalem, it says that the nations will go to Jerusalem to seek blessing. And if you read in 1 Kings, you'll see that the nations went to Jerusalem to seek blessing under Solomon and to find out his wisdom. And You see this, the Queen of Sheba is just one of the entourage from around the world that marched up to Jerusalem to see Solomon. And God wanted them to see, when they came up, grandeur and glory and riches and honor and wealth because in Solomon, he had a representative of his on the earth. And this was, frankly, a unique opportunity in the history of Israel. You Remember, Israel was supposed to be a city on a hill, a place that reflected God's light and glory. And under Solomon, Israel wasn't going out conquering nations. Nations were coming to Israel to find God's honor and glory and blessing in this king, King Solomon. And so in that sense, this grand palace, this grand hall, this throne of gold and ivory, this was all meant to communicate to others that Solomon was God's man and the nations came to receive God's blessing through Solomon. Also, though we've mentioned this before, this is supposed to be a reminder, just as First Chronicles makes it clear that Solomon is not the last word God has to say on David's descendant that would sit on his throne. This picture of this royal, rich palace is supposed to be a reminder to us that when the dust is settled on this planet and God starts things over, you and I go up to our own royal palaces with God. And This does go back to John 14 Jesus says, you know, he's gone to his father's home. He's working on dad's house. He's putting those expansions, those additions on so that we'll all have our own place. And this is just like Solomon building his home. And it's not a little hovel and it's not a little place with tight quarters like some of our homes might be. It's a big roomy place. And when you see or read this description of Solomon's temple, it's a reminder to us of what we're going to. It's this new Jerusalem built by God. You know, a place so big and so vast, there's room for everybody, plenty of room for everyone. And I think trading on this theme in 1 Kings, it's a city of gold. You remember in Revelation when it describes the city, it says the streets are gold, clear as crystal. In fact, it says that the, uh, the foundation stones of the new, this heavenly Jerusalem They're covered with jewels. They're costly foundation stones trading on that same theme. So that when we read this description of Solomon's palace and these administrative buildings, it's supposed to remind us, I think, again, of what we're going to. You know, if God gives you the wealth of Solomon, my word to you would be to rejoice and to enjoy it. And to also see it as a responsibility that through that wealth you model to the world around you God and God's character. If God gives you the wealth of Solomon and you live in golden palaces, rejoice. Don't feel bad. Have a good time and enjoy those good things and use those good things God has given you to communicate who God is and what he's like to those around you. If God doesn't give you the wealth of Solomon and that would be most of us, then I'd say to you, rejoice. And enjoy all the ways God blesses you on earth. And then remember that even if you live in a hovel on earth, and many Christians around the world do, that we've got a promise of this wealth to come that would make the wealth of Solomon's day seem small time, inferior. So if you've got great wealth and golden palaces on earth, or if you've got the normal house that most of us live in, in either case, you can rejoice. And to whatever degree God blesses you with wealth or material blessings, enjoy it, use it, and then remember you're God's representative. And might people come to you and walk away having heard or having seen some reflection of God through the way he's blessed you. And if you live in the small house on the end of the block or whatever, might, God, might people still see in you, hear from you the communication of the riches that God has in store for those who love Him. It's good either way. It's good coming or going. Let me close with this quote out of 1 Timothy 6. I think this puts things in perspective. This was written by Paul, of course, the guy who said he knew how to abound. He knew how to live in palaces of gold or he knew how to do with nothing. He said this, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that the wonder and wealth of this earth is at its best, Lord, a reminder of the good things you have prepared for those who know you, for those who love you, for those who call on your name. Father, thanks that in Solomon we have a a person, a historical figure on earth who was a reminder to us that you will Keep all your good promises to David and that one day your son, David's heir, the Lord Jesus Christ, will take up that throne. Will rule from the throne of David, Lord. That the nations will seek his blessings in Jerusalem. And that, Lord, that eventually he will establish his eternal kingdom, that kingdom that has no end. And, Lord, that you are perhaps even now putting the finishing touches on your royal palaces in heaven, the new Jerusalem, awaiting the day in which your son, the Lord Jesus, calls us home to be with him forever. Lord, whatever our experience on this earth is, I know that we can bless you as a generous God who delights in lavishly providing for all our needs and many of our wants. And Father, I pray that We begin and end well as Solomon began, Lord, by putting you and your things first. Lord, I know that those who seek you first, seek your kingdom, seek to fulfill your will. Lord, we don't lose anything in that transaction. We are only and always blessed by you as we seek you first. Father, help us to make heaven, which is our true home, help us to make you. And heaven, our treasure, the treasure that we seek. In Jesus' name, amen.